As many of you know, we have been in this series about being formed in the image of Jesus. Formed in the image of Jesus. So what does it look like to be formed in the image of Jesus? Well, Jesus' life was marked by incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Uh, this is what we've been exploring together. If, if we are to have a Jesus-shaped life, then our lives too will be marked by incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. So last week, we, we zoomed in on this theme of incarnation, and we're continuing uh, to uh, dwell in this and reflect on this together. And um, I'd like to do something together as we begin an incarnational practice, so to speak. Um, so I want to invite you to stand back up again, uh, if, if you're able. Uh, and I want to sing another song together, one uh, that uh, is been present in my life in the past. Uh, it's a song that, that I, I grew up singing a lot in youth group, uh, you know, Christian youth group, that sort of thing uh, that we would often sing together. It's sort of like an uh, interactive Christian Simon Says sort of scenario. Uh, the, it alternates between singing hallelujah over and over again, and then it gives you instructions for what to do. Uh, now, some of you uh, may know exactly what song I'm talking about and either be very excited about it or very um, tentative about what's about to happen. Uh, but if you do know, please join me in singing along. Um, you guys ready? I want you to muster up the, you know, youthful energy, as much of that as you can. Pretend like you're in youth group right now, okay? And you're going to have to move around a little. You're going to have to interact with one another when you hear the instructions. The song goes like this. How are you feeling? Right? Woohoo! All right. You can sit down again if you'd like. Um, some of you are feeling energized. Some of you might be feeling traumatized. Um, some of you might feel somewhere in between. Trust me, as a youth group kid, I was all of those things in the middle of that song. Um, you know, but oh, how I remember singing songs like this. Uh, and depending on how old you were, the moment that it started, you were either trying to get 
next to the person, girl or boy, that you had a crush on, or as far away as possible from someone of the opposite sex, um, because you either wanted to hug them or you didn't want to have anything to do with them, right? Uh, I mean, this was the dynamics of youth group, uh, and it was fun, right? But here's what I want to think about. Why do you think songs like these are often considered youth group songs? Why is that? To force, to, to force you to interact with one another. Yeah, someone else? Energy, energy. yeah. yeah Got to get that youthful energy out. Fewer inhibitions than adults. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Emotionally driven. Okay. There's some excitement in there. Yeah. Not as much theology, right? It's just about action, right? You're telling me what to do and I'm going to do it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I wonder if at least part of the reason why we think of this as a youth song is because there is this lingering idea within us that we're supposed to grow up beyond things like that as adults and get to the really important stuff of thinking and learning, right? Let the youth group do that stuff so that we can learn and, and think. We don't need handshakes and hugs. We need teaching. We need that theology, right? But here's the thing. Is, is, that, is that right? Is that true? Right? No, it's not. Uh, I, I don't mean the part about needing teaching and theology. I think we do need those things. Um, but what I mean is I, I think we're wrong about not needing handshakes and hugs and all the like. You see, research has shown that a certain number of meaningful physical touches each day contributes to mental health and stability. And having even more meaningful physical touches in your day can actually lead to psychological growth, right? Studies show that receiving hugs actually can erode the effects of depression. A pat on the back can actually reduce the anxiety that we feel. Physical touch can actually help us move toward joy and peace, which Scripture describes as fruit of the Spirit. So our spiritual formation is not merely a matter of learning. It's not merely a matter of gathering up information or achieving some sort of a mental state. Our bodies actually contribute to our spiritual formation. Our physical interactions actually play a part in producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Right? Our bodies are part of our participation in the kingdom of God. This is what I want to reflect on together today as we're continuing to linger with this theme of incarnation. Our bodies are part of who we are 
and how we live in God's kingdom. So uh, we're going to go to a few different Bible passages, but one that we'll spend some time in is 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, if you want to open up there, we'll begin by reading that. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll begin in verse 12. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. So for those who simply want the practical points, that's pretty much it. Honor God with your bodies. Or as some translations say, glorify God with your body. That's the basic summary here. And we'll touch on some more practical implications as we go along. But for those who want to dig a little deeper and understand what's going on here, we need to consider some context. We need to consider some context. One of the contexts to consider is what Paul believes about the essence of a human being. All right. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? What is a human being? The fancy term for this is anthropology, right? Uh, or if you want to get even more fancy, theological anthropology, right? Um, there are all kinds of competing anthropologies today. Uh, Eastern spiritual understandings think of people as individual expressions of the universe who come from the oneness of being and eventually return back to it at death. Humans are like drops of water taken from the ocean who eventually return to that ocean, 
right? That's one way of thinking about humanity. Secular understandings of humanity see us as merely highly evolved animals. Any sense of spirituality or meaning or depth or emotion can easily be reduced to a mental construct produced by the organ of our brain. And that's it. And of course, last week we talked about the ancient ideology of Gnosticism that sees humans as essentially spirits that are trapped inside of bodies, seeking to feed the spirit, but eventually put the body aside. And as we talked about, variations of that persist today in all kinds of ways, both within and beyond the church. But what did Paul believe about the body? What did Paul believe about humanity? What was his anthropology, right? What ideology is Paul working from as he writes to the Corinthians? And what does it have to do with honoring God with our bodies? To understand this, we need to go back and review the Hebrew creation story. This was the foundation of so much, the foundation of Paul's ideology and and the rest of Scripture. Of course, in Genesis 1, we're told that God creates humanity in God's image as male and female. This is what we've been reflecting on for a few weeks in various ways. But we get a closer view of this in Genesis chapter 2. And the creation of humanity is described in one verse, Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed man, humanity, of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This is how God created humanity. Formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Uh, Here's a way of depicting it. First, there's dust, the body, right? The matter, physical matter. Uh, And then there's the breath of life being filled with the Spirit. And together, that is a living soul. Body, and spirit as one become a living soul. This is the Hebrew or the Jewish understanding of what it means to be a human being. There's no division between body and spirit, between physical and spiritual. These two are joined together into one unified whole that is called a soul or a living being. There's an often, uh, there's a quote that's often been misattributed to C.S. Lewis that goes something like this. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And as you hear that, uh, there might be a few of us that kind of resonate with that. That nod and go, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, The first time I ever heard this, I thought, oh yeah, wow. Um, how, how deep and profound. But, but here's the problem. This runs counter to the image of humanity that we find in Genesis 2. 
It's not a soul that has a body. It's a body filled with the life of spirit that is a soul. So I want to say something profound. You are a body. You are spirits. And because of that, you are a soul. This is what is true of us. I think C.S. Lewis probably turns over in his grave every time this quote is misattributed to him because he actually would violently disagree. Uh, He considered this body-spirit split to be a war that has been waged ever since the fall. He wrote, the spirit was once not a garrison, a troop of soldiers, maintaining its post with difficulty in a hostile nature, but rather the spirit was once fully at home with its organism. He goes on to illustrate this by the ways that we have a tendency to laugh or be embarrassed by just normal body functions, right? I mean, the best way to get in with a child is to start making tooting jokes, right? They love them. Um, They'll go for it every single time. You talk about tooting, you talk about pooping, you're going to be in because that's funny. Um, and, And the thing is, is we all tend to laugh about this or become embarrassed about it, right? We laugh at our bodies or a loud rumbling sound from our intestines will make us blush. That would be awkward, especially in a room like this for someone sitting next to you. And yet these are perfectly normal body functions, right? It's part of being a body. But for some reason, we're uncomfortable with them. So C.S. Lewis goes on to observe, what we have here is an animal which finds its own animality either objectionable or funny. And so he describes it this way, unless there has been a quarrel between the spirit and the organism, I don't see how this could be. So sometime after the fall, because of the fall, our spirits and our bodies got in a fight and have been warring with one another ever since. But the right way of things is for body and spirit to be at one with one another. That's what it means to be a living soul. So this is the ideological context that Paul is writing from. The human being is not two separate things, body or spirit, but rather one thing, a soul that is a body-spirit unity. That's who we are. So turning our attention back to 1 Corinthians, this is the view that Paul's defending. This is the ideology that Paul is speaking from. But the Corinthians had gotten it wrong. They had gotten wrapped up in that ancient Gnostic ideology that we talked about last week that separates the body and the spirit. And the way that they understood things was this, the spirit is the only thing that really matters. So, the Corinthians, I mean, if you read the letter, they're pursuing exciting things like spiritual gifts. Uh, they're, they're getting caught up in all kinds of special supernatural knowledge, uh, which Paul addresses later on in the letter. 
and says need to be tempered with love. Uh, the body, on the other hand, they say, doesn't really matter. All right? I, so the way that they interpreted that is I can do whatever I want with it. I can do anything I want to with my body uh, because it's not my spirit. What I do with my body does not affect my spirit. So Paul hears them saying things like this and living out this way, and he's got to correct it because the body and the spirit are one, not separate things. So he starts out with their little ideological slogans that they've, they've come up with. Just like the many that we hear today, uh, or see on signs at protests and so on, right? We're, we have, live in a world filled with ideological slogans. Um, but Paul takes them at theirs and seeks to correct them. So the very first slogan that he confronts is this. I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything, right? I mean, I can do whatever I want to in my life, in my body, because it's different from my spirit. But Paul responds, sure, you can do everything, but not everything is beneficial. And again, he repeats, I have the right to do anything. That's their slogan. And Paul says again, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, it doesn't come through in the translation, but the Greek, the right to do something, uh, is the same word that Paul uses for being mastered by something. And so it might go something like this. I, I have the right to be my own master. And Paul responds, ah, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, Paul is turning their slogan on its head. Sure, you can do anything, but that's not necessarily good. Sure, you can be the master of your own life, but... If you're careless, you will eventually become mastered by your life. And isn't it interesting today in our country and our culture, how often people on whatever end of the political spectrum become consumed with fighting about various rights that they have. So much so that they cease to be capable of loving someone who's different from them. I have my rights. And Paul says, sure. But are you being good? Are you loving someone else? See, this is when rights become wrong. It's whenever we become enslaved by our own egocentric vision of freedom. It's when we become mastered by being masters of ourselves. The Corinthians believed that they were essentially spiritual, so they had the right to do anything they wanted with their bodies. And Paul deeply disagrees with that because this is not how things are. There's no division between spirit and body. You are one living soul. The next slogan that he confronts goes like this. They said, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will destroy them both in the end. In other words, food and stomachs don't have anything to do with our spiritual life. 
because they believed both would ultimately end up destroyed. Now, it soon becomes very clear that as Paul quotes this, he's not just referring to food and stomachs. He's talking about all the things we do in our bodies. And in particular with the Corinthians, sex. He's talking about sex. Many of the Corinthians were playing fast and loose with their sexual lives, sleeping around, sleeping with prostitutes, both male and female, which is a common practice then. Uh, And they felt fine with this because, to paraphrase, sex is for the body, and the body is for sex, and God will destroy them both in the end. But Paul corrects and counters this slogan this way. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. After all, by his power, God raised up the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. And so again, he turns their slogan on its head. Our bodies are not just physical things for physical purposes. Our bodies are bound up with our spirit as one thing, a living soul. And our bodies are not ultimately destined for destruction. Paul makes that clear. They're destined for resurrection. And so over and over again, Paul is countering this split that occurs between body and spirit. And he insists that life in Christ is about integrating the two rather than pulling them apart. And that is ultimately the essence of a Christian sexual ethic. It is about the integration of body and spirit. It's about truly being living souls. There are so many things in our world that drive a wedge between our spirit and our body. And Paul emphasizes the ways in which sex does that immensely. Casually sleeping around. Pornography. Much of the sexual confusion of our culture. All of these things are a result of and contribute to the increasing split between body and spirit. And much of what I learned, or at least intuited from church growing up on sexuality, uh, was along the same lines. It was easy to pick up this idea that sex is inherently bad and wrong. So you just need to stay away from it. And there are many of my generation who have voiced the fact that they continue carrying a sense of shame and guilt around sexuality even within marriage. Because how do you live your whole life hearing that sex is bad and evil and then be expected for it to be okay all of a sudden? Right? Because even our Christian teaching has often torn apart the spirit and the body and said that the body is bad and the spirit is good. 
And that's just ancient Gnosticism all over again. But the Christian sexual ethic is about living with integrity. It's about integrating body, spirit as one thing that is soul. That's why the Christian teaching about sexuality is that marriage, a place of deep emotional, spiritual vulnerability, is the only place that we can rightly express sexuality. Because it is the only place where soul, spirit, body is all in alignment, not being cut apart from one another. But let's be honest. It can be very easy to rail on sexuality. Churches often have been known for railing on sexuality. But there are many other ways that we drive wedges between our bodies and our spirits. And this brings us back to the idea of being made in the image of God. We are people made in the image of God. And as God's image, if you remember the kind of pictures we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, images were often placed in in a place as a sign of a king. Or, another way this was used in the ancient world, images were placed in temples as a sign of a god. We are the image of God that God has placed in this world to be a picture of his presence, of his reality. And so are we living as images of God? Well, there's a wonderful refrain that occurs in a couple of different psalms that I want to look at briefly. Psalm 115 is one of the places where this occurs. Uh, It goes like this. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. And then it goes on. Their idols, their images, are silver and gold. They're made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. They have eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. They have noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. This last verse is key. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. We are made in God's image. And as we worship God, we become like God. But in these nations, they have made other images that cannot talk or speak or move or any of these things. And as those false gods are worshipped, so, says the psalmist, they become like those false gods, unable to speak, 
to see, to hear, to smell, so on and so forth. There are many things in our lives that stir us to worship them. And in so doing, make us less human than we really are. The best illustration of this comes from an incredible film from about 15 years ago or so, um, from none other than Disney Pixar, one of my favorite filmmakers, right? Uh, it is strange because it is in this story that teaches us about humanity. Uh, we learn about humanity not from humans, but from a robot named Wally, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? I want you to watch this clip and see what I mean. Have it all morning, so let's over over to the driving range and hit a few virtual balls in space. Now nah, we did that yesterday. I don't want to do that. Well, then what do you want to do? I don't know. Something. Wow. Make a place grief. It does sound Look, I'm tired of it. If you can't fold the straw, you have to decide any good. Oh, 
There is so much there to explore, uh, but I simply want to point out that this is a community of humans living in the future in some, uh, you know, space station, uh, and their whole lives are lived without their bodies, right? They're just living through their screens, that opening shot, the two people were talking to each other through their screens. They were right next to each other. They didn't know. We live in a world like this today that is increasingly pushing us toward our screens, whether it's televisions or phones, and driving a wedge between our spirits and our bodies. How often are we really present? How often are we actually here? Rather than letting our minds wander and go somewhere else, on and on it goes. I think these are the idols of our day. These are the idols that have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. On and on it goes. And those who trust in them become like them. The incarnation the word became flesh, is a call for us to be present in the here and now, in our bodies, to live into the integration of spirit and body. And so I want to leave you with a few practical ways that we can practice this in our lives. One of them, very simply, is paying attention to your five senses, right? What do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? What do you feel? What do you taste? Linger with every one of those. God has graciously given us all of these, to experience the goodness of his creation. What a wonderful thing that a good meal could be an act of worship. That taking a deep breath at fresh flowers or freshly baked bread could be an act of worship. That looking upon the beauty of a sunrise or sunset, depending on whether you're a morning or evening person, can be an act of worship. It's only possible because we have eyes and can see. Because we have ears and can hear. Another practice is simply to pay attention to your breathing. I love that we began this morning by taking a deep breath together. 
There's something about taking a deep breath that just brings you back to right here and right now. There's an ancient practice uh, called breath prayer that takes a very simple phrase, often from Scripture, and just turns it into a prayer that is inhaled and exhaled. The traditional uh, breath prayer is uh, from some of the Gospels where people will approach Jesus and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so you take a breath in, Lord Jesus Christ, and then you exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's one breath prayer that's been practiced for by many throughout the centuries. But I would encourage you to consider that every line in the Lord's Prayer that we pray every day, every week, it could be a breath prayer. Take a breath in, our Father in heaven. Breathe out, hallowed be your name. You can do this with the whole prayer, but you could just linger with a couple of them. And just turning that breath in and breath out into a prayer that reminds us that we're here right now. Another very simple practice is going on walks. For some reason, we have this image that if we're going to pray, we need to be still, we need to fold our hands, we need to bow our heads, we need to exit our bodies. That's not true. Go for a walk. Talk to God there. There's plenty of psychology and neuroscience that says that as we are walking, we're engaging both the right side and the left side of our body. It literally integrates our brains. It integrates our spirit and our body. There's so much more that can be said about this. But when we look at false idols, we end up becoming lifeless people. When we look at false images of God, we too become false images of God. But when we look at the one who is the true image of God, the Word who became flesh, we see Jesus who ate and drank, who laid his hands on people to bring healing, who washed his disciples' feet. This is an image of God that has hands and feet and eyes and ears and can use them. And as we look to Jesus, we become like him. So may we become more fully and truly who God made us as we integrate our body and our spirit and become living souls 